one of the things that perhaps you should all know is that John and Gil and I went through teacher training together starting in 1989. So if you get a little sibling energy every now and then, kind of poking each other, John just commented that the print on my talks is getting bigger and bigger every time we teach together. That's what it's all about. It's actually been a delight to teach with them for all this time, so it's a goodness. So here's a poem to start with. It's a little poem by E.Q. He says, Every day, priests minutely examine the law and endlessly chant complicated sutras. Before doing that, though, they should learn how to read the love letters sent by the wind and the rain, the snow, and the moon. So I wanted to bring you that tonight, partly because it seems like at the end of a first day of retreat, it's helpful to have something that just lifts the heart a little bit. Um, sometimes the first day, as we said this morning, is pretty swampy and difficult, restless and tired and um, confusing sometimes, for particularly for those of you who are new, or sometimes even for those of you who are not new. You thought you knew what kind of retreat you were going to get, and then it starts being a different kind of retreat. And it's always interesting to try to think about, well, what, what do we need? You know, what do we need when we're here on the retreat? And we talked a little bit last night about, you know, the process of getting ready for some kind of a journey. And, you know, if you're packing for a journey, as I did last week when I was getting ready to come here, and some of you did also, I'm sure, you think about, you know, which clothing should you bring and how much and what's the weather going to be like and what's the terrain where you're visiting and what kinds of events will you encounter. And, and we go through pretty much the same process when we prepare to go on a retreat, you know, and... Um, I talked last night about how I felt like I had to put my affairs in order, you know, before I sat any kind of a retreat. And you make sure your partner is set up to take care of things in your absence and your kids and your bills are paid and your cat will be fed and your mail will be picked up and your job will be taken care of. And then you think about, well, what am I going to bring to the retreat? So, you know, are you going to do, maybe this time you're going to do Zen austerity. You know, and so you bring two pairs of pants and two t-shirts and that's it for the whole week. You just flip-flop back and forth. Or maybe you decide that you're going to bring an outfit for every occasion, and one for breakfast and another one for the talk, and one for rain if we should be lucky enough to get any, and that kind of thing. And, and of course, some of you who were, are here for the first time, you may not really have known. You know, what, what does one bring to a retreat? And I've had any number of encounters with students at these retreats who thought they were coming to sunny and warm California. <laughs> and when I arrived at the airport Saturday night, I was reminded of Mark Twain's comment about how the coldest winter he ever spent was summer in San Francisco. So it's so often cold and windy as it was today, and sometimes foggy. But you know, you got here. You got here. And I got here. And we come because we have some kind of vision that we're following. 
And this is a vision, it's not just ours, you know. This vision has inspired thousands and thousands of people to go on retreats to monasteries and to retreat centers. It's the vision that inspired the Buddha himself. You know, a vision that we can wake up, we can be more present in our lives, we can end our own suffering, and we can end the suffering of all other beings. It's a great vision. It's, it's such a wonderful vision. And we encounter difficulties when we start to follow it. Sometimes there's pain. I imagine there have been a lot of painful bodies in the hall today. And there's resistance and confusion. And sometimes the mind is utterly crazed. And sometimes we come to a retreat and find out this is the retreat we're going to be sick on instead of the retreat we're going to be healthy on. Sometimes it's the hindrances that Heather mentioned this morning in her instructions. You know, that we are hit with overwhelming desire or overwhelming aversion or restlessness or paralyzing sleepiness and torpor or the darkness and stickiness of the doubting mind. And what's really wonderful is that the Buddha knew all this could happen. And it's been known and taught by many people for all these years. And many of the teachings are instructions for working with the mind and the heart. So one of these teachings is the theme that we're going to be using for this retreat. And this is the list of the five faculties. And tonight I'm going to give a bit of an overview and talk about all of them. And then on the subsequent nights, we'll be talking about different ones more closely. So these five things are faith, or sometimes better translated as conviction, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And what's really interesting about this list is it's actually two lists, because there's a second list called the five strengths, which is exactly the same. It has faith and energy and mindfulness and concentration and wisdom. So these are tools. These are tools that you can use, we can all use, to support the process of awakening. And they're also the characteristics of the awakened mind. And they're really reliable tools. It's one of the things I love about this list. This is, these are like the hammer and pliers and scissors and drills and screwdrivers of our practice, the things that everybody has in their toolbox and they're useful for all kinds of things. And if you think about all the teachers who have inspired us, you know, the Martin Luther Kings and the Desmond Tutus and the Gandhis and the Nelson Mandelas and the Dalai Lamas of our planet, the Mother Teresas, all of these people have great conviction. They are utterly convinced of what they understand to be true. And they have amazing amounts of energy. Amazing amounts of energy. I'm watching the Dalai Lama tool around these days and he's about to be 80. He's astounding. 
and they have considerable presence. If you're in the presence of one, you really know it. Very focused and very wise. A little closer to home, I was actually reminded today of one of my favorite John stories. He doesn't know I'm going to tell this, but I'm springing it on him. And he told us at one of these retreats about practicing, as he has done a number of times, in a cave in Ladakh. And that particular cave and that particular time turned out to be near the place where they were burning the bodies of dead people. And there were animals around that were left to rot. And he needed to keep on practicing because that's where he was doing this retreat. And, you know, you can imagine. I might have packed up and gone home, I think. I don't know. But it takes a certain kind of conviction. You know, this is the right thing to do right now. And it takes energy and it takes a lot of mindfulness and a lot of concentration. It was a far cry from the comfort of the deluxe retreat center that we have here at Spirit Rock. So as we look at these tools, I thought we'd look at them first as a kind of a causal sequence in which each element supports the next, so they build on each other. And I want to talk first about conviction which is really a much better word than faith. Faith has too many connotations for most of us in our culture, and it often implies um, a kind of um, belief. And, and in Buddhist thinking, it actually carries the notion of a sense of action. It's not based on belief. It's not a commodity that you either have or you don't have. But in the end... It's the ability to trust your own deepest experience. The ability to trust your own deepest experience. Not someone else's, but your own. Your very own experience. And many of us, as we grew up in whatever interesting family system you were part of, or interesting school system, or whatever it was, we didn't learn to trust our own experience. You know, I didn't have any idea that my own experience was something that I could trust for a long time. We were taught that we had to behave in certain ways. That's what was acceptable. Or we had to believe in certain ideas. Or we had to believe in the experiences that other people had had and that we ha didn't have directly for ourselves. And sometimes... If you had your own ideas um, or your own experiences, um, those were discounted and not accepted. That wasn't, wasn't anything that anyone else was interest, interested to hear about, particularly the elders in the community. And sometimes we were judged and criticized so often that if we had even had a, a smidge of trust in our own experience, we lost that. We didn't have confidence in that. And you know, the Buddha... The Buddha, as he sat under the Bodhi tree, even his conviction was challenged by Mara. You know, one of these wonderful stories about this Mara being who always comes along and kind of tests him. And he, so the Mara said to the Buddha, he said, who are you to think about being fully enlightened? Can you imagine? Who are you 
to think about being fully enlightened. And the Buddha reached out and touched the ground. And you've probably, many of you have seen the images of the Buddha reaching out and touching the ground and calling the earth to witness his right to be free and his right to have his own experience and to trust his own wisdom and his insight. So the word for faith or conviction in Pali is sada, and it's sometimes translated as to place the heart upon. It's a nice translation, to place the heart upon. So every one of us, every one of us, you all know something moved in your heart to bring you here, right? Something moved and said, I want to go to that retreat. Maybe it was the memory of other retreats. You've done this before. Maybe, I know some of you are here, you're kind of part of a longer pilgrimage of practice, doing several retreats, you know, one after another. So it was part of that kind of vision. Or sometimes, maybe for some of you who are newer, you know, you came because a trusted friend said, you know, you ought to go to Spirit Rock and try it out, see what they've got to offer. Or you met a teacher who suggested that you came here. Whatever it was, your heart at some point stirred and said yes. Got online or whatever you did and filled out all the forms and arranged to get here. And the conviction that this was the right place to be this week arose in your heart and you placed that heart, you know, upon this time of practice. So we begin in the world of thinking about conviction with what's sometimes called bright faith. And I've always loved that term, bright faith, because it's kind of shiny and sparkly. And it's that faith that falls in love with a teaching or with a practice or is inspired by a particular teacher. And at this point in faith, in fact, we are quite a bit trusting another, another's experience. We're moved by it. You know, there's something that that person has. When I first started practice, I went, um, I w- had been interested in learning how to meditate, and I, I was a, at that time in my life, still I am a little bit, a pretty cautious kind of person. And I didn't, you know, I, I certainly wasn't going to, I've heard of people who went to the three-month retreat without ever having been to a retreat. I wasn't going to do anything like that. I went down to Asilomar to the Transpersonal Psych Conference <coughs> where Jack Cornfield was teaching a one-day class in how to meditate. I figured that was safe, you know, nothing too bad was going to happen there. And um, so I walked in. I had, I had no idea. I truly had no idea who Jack was. I, I think I'd heard that he was a good teacher. And he was handy, you know. He was part of the conference. And he started to talk, and I kind of went, oh, huh. You know, and really was touched by what he had to say. And then, even more astounding, at that particular uh, weekend, later on in the conference, Roger Walsh, who is a great student and teacher, um, came to talk. And he started to talk. I actually don't remember what the, the theme of his talk was. But he began to talk about the suffering of the world. And he was talking about all the places that had wars and all the children who were starving. And, 
And after a while as he talked, he began to weep. Right up there in front of, you know, a few hundred people. And I thought, whoa, I don't know what he's got, but I wanted it. I wanted it. I wanted to know how, how, how did you, how do you get a heart like that? How do you get a heart that is that open, that is that deeply touched by the suffering of the world? So another image that came to me as I thought about this is, um, and it's from a totally different realm, is in 1995, the Hubble Space Telescope went up. They didn't know what they were going to see. They went up, they got up there, they pointed it out to a particular spot in the sky, and just began to, they were inspired. They had bright faith, but they didn't know for sure. In the suttas, the image that's given to us is that you've heard about an elephant. You know, there's an elephant maybe in the forest, but you don't know that the elephant is there in the forest. And one day, you're near the forest, and you see this big footprint. You go, whoa, maybe there really is an elephant in the forest. And you get quite excited because, certainly in the time of the Buddha, it was very handy to have elephants because they could work for you. And if you could get a really big one, then it would be very helpful in what you had to do. So this is all in the realm of bright faith, that place where we get excited and inspired and we start something. The Buddha also describes this kind of faith. He gives the image of cows crossing a stream. And the older and wiser and cagey cows, they go first, right? Because they know how to get across the stream. They know where the deep places are and the shallow places. And so they go, and then after they've gone, they start lowing, and then the babies follow along afterward. So I thought, you know, I followed Jack Cornfield's lowing, really, and Roger Walsh's, and, you know, those that of my teachers, and you probably are following the lowing of your teachers to kind of get across the stream. And this is how we begin to find out for ourselves. And the next category of faith is that of verified faith. Because following isn't really enough. And trusting the experience of another and getting excited and inspired by another isn't enough. You have to find out for yourself and you have to do that hard work. And that's what you're doing here. That's what we do when we come to the retreat and you work with the instructions, even if you've heard them a gazillion times. You know, every time I hear instructions, I love listening to instructions for practice because I, I always hear something a little bit different. I go, oh, oh, you know, even after all these years. And so, you know, you begin to think, oh, what happens? What happens if I actually do this? In my very early years of practice, so after I met Jack and um, started to do, had some connection to him and started to do, went on a retreat. And I think my first and possibly my second retreat, you know, I watched, I watched all these people moving really slowly and I thought, well, that's very nice that they are moving slowly. I guess, you know, they, they have to move slowly, but I don't have to move slowly. And so I didn't move slowly. 
And, you know, the first retreat went by, and somewhere in the second or possibly third, I went, oh, I think maybe I'm supposed to follow the instructions. (laughs) It's a little embarrassing to tell you the story, but, you know, you don't get to just watch it. You have to do it, to do it, to test the conviction which brought you here, to test it. You know? So each of us follows, each of us has our own way of checking. You know, you follow the instructions, you go to retreat, you read the books, you attend teachings, you experiment, you see what works for you. So in this teaching about the elephant, you know, the person starts looking through the forest and because it's important to find out what kind of an elephant is this? Because it might be, it says in the suttas, he thinks it might be, maybe it's a dwarf elephant with big feet. You know, that's not so useful, right? Or he might see some scrapings up high and he thinks, well, it might be a tall, skinny elephant, but also not so. Is it a really big, strong one? That's the question. And so even though you begin to find some evidence, you still don't have the, the elephant himself or herself. So you keep checking, keep checking, keep checking. And in the Hubble, to pick up that thread again, in the Hubble, they kept looking and they kept looking and they kept taking pictures over a period of about 10 days without knowing what the results were. Here, it's really important to know everything that you hear, all of the instructions, all of the teachings are structures for the investigation of your own mind and heart. That's what they are. They're structures for the investigation, for your investigation of your own mind and heart. What is happening in there? How does this work? So you do have to find it out for yourself. The Buddha says in his teaching to the Kalamas, he says it's like um, testing a coin to see if it's gold. And in those days, to find out if something was really gold, you bit it. And if it was soft, it was gold. And if it wasn't soft, it wasn't gold. So we're really inviting you to bite what's here, to really dig into it and to see, does it work? Does it work? I've so often told the story of going to see my friend Ajahn Amaro, who has been my person to talk to about practice off and on for a number of years. And sometimes I go in with some little interesting piece of, you know, a little twist to practice that I'm thinking, I don't know if this one's okay or not. You know, should I really be doing this? And his question to me always, always has been, does it work? And if I said yes, it works fine, he'd get a big grin on his face and say, great. And if I said, well, no, it's not working very well, then we might have a discussion about why I was doing it because it wasn't working. Does it work? That's the question. And, you know, that's that place of really being interested and curious about whether it works. This is a little, this is not the kind of doubting that is not so skillful. There's unskillful doubt. We mentioned it again briefly this morning, the kind of doubt that questions your own ability to do anything or the kind of doubt that gets bogged down in big questions like where does it all come from and what is its meaning and what is, you know, how does karma really work? The Buddha says those things are unthinkable. You can't figure them out and they are not so useful. But the kind of curiosity that says, does this work? You know, is this, 
I don't know if that's going to work. I don't really like that instruction. But, you know, our invitation to you is try it out anyway and see what happens. And this takes courage. You know, what you're doing here is not easy, you know. And each one of you is courageous enough to be here. This practice, you know, this practice, mindfulness insight practice, it's a wisdom practice, right? And we like that part. But it's also a purification practice. And so again, as we've commented already, you, know, you come here sometimes for peace and quiet, a bit of rest, and then you discover that you're in the middle of inner chaos. And it might be this time you're getting to hang out with your, the least favorite aspects of your own heart and mind, It may be that you're in the midst of all kinds of painful memories. It may be that you had a great retreat last time, and this time it's just, for some reason, really tough. It may be that everything hurts. That's quite likely today, I think. Everything hurts. Your heart hurts, your mind hurts, your back hurts, your hip hurts, and your knees hurt. Everything hurts. So it really takes courage. You know, you all walked back in here at the end of a long day of practice one more time takes great strength and conviction. And sometimes it takes us right to the edge of our capacity. You know, how, you sit there and you think, how can I bear this? How can I test this out? And then we discover that we can. And so that brings us to what we call abiding faith. And that's where you know in the marrow of your bones that something is true because you've experienced it yourself. You know that it works. It's the understanding that we live, that we embody. It's what allows us to walk our talk, really, and um, to live in accordance with what we know to be true, even when there are huge challenges. Paul Tillich describes this in a completely other world of thinking about these things as alignment with our ultimate concern. Alignment with our ultimate concern. Sometimes it's as simple as you begin to see, oh, look, I'm responding differently in different situations. I have more equanimity. I have more balance. Sometimes our our friends with the Hubble, after the 10 days, when they viewed all the images, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of galaxies with billions of stars that no one on this earth had ever seen before. You can imagine the jubilation that it was, you know, this piece of faith that they were trying out turned out to be true. And in the Buddha's image about the elephant in the forest, that's that point where you part the bushes and there it is, this great big elephant, perfect for hauling logs and doing all the work that you might want to do. And you know that that elephant is real and you can work with it. But faith alone, conviction alone, doesn't do the practice. To do the work of the retreat and to verify our faith, you're going to need energy or effort. No news at the end of a first day of a retreat, I don't think. You begin to see how much, you know, it's astounding, isn't it? You know, you come here, you sit here with your eyes closed, for heaven's sakes. 
You're just sitting still. And by the end of the day, you can hardly stand up. You know, you're exhausted at the end of the day. I'm exhausted anyway. So we know that it takes a lot of energy. And the Buddha over and over again talks about just how much energy and effort that we need. And he talks about how to not use too much energy to push too hard, nor too little, not too tight, you know, get too tight with it, not too loose. The image he gives is the strings of a lute, you know, how you keep your, your instrument um, tuned so it's, it puts out the right kind of music. Sometimes I think about pedaling a bicycle because you have to shift your energy according to what kind of terrain you're in. So, and we use our energy to sustain and to encourage helpful states of mind and to dispel and to avoid the unhelpful ones. It's a lot of work, this practice. And, you know, if you've ever watched a child who's learning to walk, you know, you've got a little kid who's however old they are, a little over one, I guess, and they sort of stagger along for a few steps, and then they fall over, and sometimes they laugh, and sometimes they cry, and then they get up, and they do it all over again. And they wobble, and they fall, and they wobble, and they fall, and after a while they wobble a little further, and they fall a little less, until they actually get it. It takes a lot of vitality and a lot of persistence. And it's, a, it's quite a lot like, remember that children's story that was the little engine that could? You know, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. So you could consider yourself, you know, the retreaters that could, the little retreaters that could, and just every now and then, you know, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, and bring that kind of energy. This is a training that you're doing. It's a training camp for the mind and the heart. You might think tonight it's boot camp, but it's, you know, it is a training camp. And you have ahead of you five more full days of practice, which is a lot of minutes on the cushion. It's a lot of, don't do the math. It might be discouraging, but it's a lot. And it's a lot of hours of moment-to-moment presence in all of our activities and eating and dishwashing. It's a challenge course. Can you do it? Can you do it? So we do it to end suffering, our own suffering and that of others. And it's a big task. And we don't know how long we have. That's really important. You know? We all know. I often think we had a friend, our friend Steve, who worked here, was a caretaker. Some of you probably remember him. And he would always sit over there, and he was here every morning for the early morning sit, and he was here for all the Dharma talks. And he practiced... He practiced like his hair was on fire. And then he very suddenly died. Much too young. Much too young. With not a lot of warning. But he brought so much energy into his practice. He was an inspiration to all of us. And that's the question. Can we bring that kind of ardency and intensity and passion to our own practice? And how we do this exactly is going to vary from person to person. There are some of you who may be into this retreat with an enormous amount of energy and strength. You have it and you are ready to sit late and get up early and sit long and move slowly and one of those, I think of them as John Wayne retreats, you know, just boom. 
And some of you are sick or you're grieving and you're in a very different place. And the perfect energy for your retreat is going to be to rest and to be in nature and to watch the deer and the turkeys and the birds and to just be slow and gentle and easeful. Your high energy retreat might be on down the line or maybe it was the last retreat and the person with high energy this time may have a grief retreat next time. We don't know. And so adjusting the strings of your particular instrument is entirely your choice to do and perhaps with the help from um, your teachers. What kind of energy do you need for this week? So that brings us to the faculty of mindfulness, the tool of mindfulness. So all that we're doing is to support our presence in each moment so that we can be fully here with each moment. That's what all the instructions are about. Be with the breath. Be with the breath. How many breaths have you taken in your life that you were not with? You know, a lot. A lot for all of us. Be with the mind. Be with the heart. Be with the body. You know, be with your meditative work and that you're doing, whatever your job is, and the dishwashing and the showering. John Tarrant talks, when he talks about mindfulness, he talks about an intention so persevering that it becomes a form of love. Isn't that great? An attention that is so, so persistent, so there, that it becomes a form of love. Everything is noticed. Nothing is left out. Nothing is left out. I think a lot about traveling when I think about this. So I've had the experience a number of times, as probably many of you have, I fly over the Sierras, right? You go over the Sierras, you look down, you go, oh, look, Yosemite right down there. Or, oh, I think that's the lake, you know, where we camped once or whatever. But, you know, you're up and you're over and you're down on the other side pretty quickly. Then maybe you drive through the Sierras. Well, that's a little different, right? You're in your car and you're going to drive up, 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 and you see mountains and you see the forests and you really begin to get a sense of, oh, these are big mountains and it's quite some distance from one side to the other, which might inspire you in a bit of um, bright faith to take a backpacking trip. And so maybe you're going to take a a cross-Sierra backpacking trip. Let's make it really good. And you start hiking from the west side of the Sierras to the east or the other way around. And you hike and you hike and you hike for a long time, carrying everything on your back. A very different experience, right? And you see things very, very differently. So that's what mindfulness is. It's that place, and especially in a retreat where you slow way down and you are walking. You're not flying. You are walking through your day moment by moment with that kind of attention. Nothing left out. And there's nothing that needs to be left out. There's, isn't it wonderful? There's nothing, there's no thing that cannot be the object of mindfulness. Whatever it is that's happening, whatever it is, this is the way it is. This pain, this interior drama, the sound, whatever. Ida, we talked about Ida last night. You know, here, notice what is happening here. 
just here. Then you're present, and then you're mindful, and that's all. That's as simple as that, and as difficult. It notices, mindfulness notices, it attends, it's present, it's not asleep, it's not in denial. It can be with that which is, diffi- which is difficult, and it can be with that which is lovely. It simply sees what is there, sees the arising and passing of each event. And that brings us to concentration. Once we're present, it's helpful to fully focus the mind and to learn to concentrate. So we need, to do this, we need the previous three faculties. We need faith, we need energy, and we need mindfulness. And then we go right into our experience. We focus it, laser-like attention, sometimes the phrase is used. to, Or maybe it's helpful to think of relaxing deeply into your experience. Relaxing is actually very helpful for concentration. Or softening into your experience so that you're fully in it. And so we practice with this. We practice by training with just one object. Often, for many of us, it's the breath. You know, we talked a lot about the breath and the instructions this morning and probably will again tomorrow morning. Can you rest the attention, rest the attention, soften the attention onto the breath? Just be with it, relaxing into it. One of the lovely things about concentration, and I just give this to you as a hint, because I find it true in my own practice, is that when I work with concentration, often joy arises. It's really sweet. And it's helpful, you know, sometimes there's that place, I think I grew up in New England, maybe I push these, you know, like you're not supposed to be happy if you're doing spiritual practice. So, but I encourage you to let yourself feel that because that happiness actually will support your concentration and allow it to deepen. And you know, the breath, just the breath can be so sweet, so interesting, or a sound, you know, just listening. You know, at one point today I was outside, I heard the turkeys. You know, just softening into that, really focusing, or a body sensation, going deeply into it. Letting go of any story you might have about the experience, penetrating with no agenda whatsoever, just to be there, not looking into the future, not looking into the past, just this moment. It takes skill, it takes practice, it takes some experience. And learning to concentrate takes time. You know? So those, again, those of you who are new, you know, it's, it's one of those things that as you practice, it will come more and more easily. It can feel pretty good, it can feel blissful, and it doesn't stick around. Sometimes concentration comes and sometimes it goes, And so part of the wisdom, we'll get to wisdom in a minute, is to allow it to arise, and then when it's not there, not to be attached. But we do need it. We need concentration in order to see deeply into the nature of things and and to to go deeply into both that which is difficult and that which is not. You know, the unconcentrated mind, again, it's like the airplane, right? The unconcentrated mind skims over It doesn't see everything, and it doesn't penetrate. It doesn't notice. So faith, augmented by energy, augmented by mindfulness, augmented by concentration, brings us to wisdom, which can now begin to arise. 
So wisdom is the insight of insight practice. And in a retreat like this, there's all kinds of layers of insight. No one will go home without any insight. You know, it's another one of those things we don't guarantee too much, but you'll have some insight. It might not be a great insight. You know, there's insights that are not so fun, like, oh my God, my mind wanders all the time. That's not an easy insight. It's actually an important one, but it's not easy. So some, there are all different kinds of insights, things that we begin to see about this mind-heart-body process that we're sitting with. It may be something from your past. It may be something about your personality. It may be something about your history, your mom, the abuse, the difficult work scene. Or maybe you'll begin to see into the nature of your suffering, you know. You may notice at some point in this retreat when you get attached to something and you want it to be a certain way and it isn't, you suffer. Voila, the Buddha was right. Annoying, but true, you know. If you attached, you suffer. Or you see, look at that, I let go. And my suffering stopped. Wow, it works. You know, that's a good thing to see. Or you see when you're reactive and you have an immediate sort of knee-jerk reaction to something, often you suffer, I do anyway. And when I take time and there's more space and I respond rather than react, I suffer less. Or maybe you begin to notice as you're sitting and walking here how impermanent everything is. In one sit, isn't it amazing? So many things arise and pass. And just that 45 minutes, the itch, the sound, the breath, the mind state, the meditation period itself, the bell always rings. You may think partway through it's not ever going to ring, but it does always ring and it comes to an end. Or maybe you begin to notice, oh, this thing that I call self, the me, it's not so solid and not so easily pinned down. It's more like a flow of experiences Seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, mental objects, one after another, all mixed up, nothing else. That's all there is. So we discover that we don't maybe really quite know what's going on. And that's great. Not knowing, actually, is perhaps the greatest wisdom of all. If you begin to think you don't know, this is good. We are glad. So these faculties, they operate causally in the sequence, but they also operate as balancing factors. And this can be one of the most useful things in your practice. You can use them as a guide for your own practice, as a method for tuning in on what you're doing here. So in this way of working with them, faith is balanced by wisdom, and energy is balanced by concentration, And mindfulness is kind of the supervisor. The mindfulness is the one that kind of looks and sees what needs to happen. So again, you know, with faith, you know, faith, faith can be so juicy, you know, and we are inspired and we are convinced. We just know that this, you know, we are in love. And this carries us forward, you know, carries us to more retreats, to more work, deeper, deeper, deeper. And sometimes it's very, very blind. 
Is there anyone in the room who has not ever fallen in love with the wrong person? You know, we've all done it, haven't we? And we were convinced when we, you know, for six weeks or eight weeks or five years or however long it took, you knew this was the right person for you. You were just sure. And then something shifted. And the faith, you know, didn't hold it anymore. Or we've heard countless stories of abuse of students by teachers and clergy, students who had faith in their clergy person or their teacher. And some of us are old enough to remember things like Jonestown or Waco, where whole groups of people were blinded by faith in a particular practice or a particular teacher and died because of it. So wisdom is very much needed. Wisdom balances this. Wisdom brings the discernment and the clear seeing of what is. It can know when to put the brakes on, you know, when to question, when to challenge what's going on. I teach sometimes in the Quaker world, and one of the Quaker practices that I love, Quakers have clearness committees. Isn't that great? So if you have a decision to make and you can't quite figure out, you know, should I, should I stay with this person? Should I leave them? Should I take this job? Should I, whatever. You can gather a group of the elders around, people that you, whose wisdom you trust, and they become your clearness committee. They bring the wisdom to your situation to help provide that discernment. But wisdom by itself, you know, without the faith, wisdom can be really dry and analytical and linear and not so helpful. So wisdom needs the juice. So this is the Goldilocks practice, right? Not too hot, not too cold, just right. Wisdom balanced by faith. Faith balanced by wisdom. Energy and concentration, same kind of thing. Energy brings the push and the fire. And it moves us forward, it moves us at whatever pace is right for us, and it pushes against obstacles, and it encourages our goals, but it can be exhausting, and it can create a lot of tension. And concentration is very still, very still, just with this one thing, penetrating the moment, going deeper and deeper, tranquil, sometimes blissful, very quiet. So we need the balance of both of those. We need not to get caught just in the stillness, that won't get us anywhere. But you can't just be caught in the energy. That can be too much. We need the balance. And mindfulness, of course, knows that which is needed in each case. So we always balance. We always balance what, what is needed. Ajahn Chah once, when asked how he directed students, he said, oh, you know, it's really mostly I watch them and I say, go a little to the left. No, go a little more to the right. You know, left, right, left, right. And, and it's always this adjustment and balance that's needed. <clears throat> so these five things, faith and energy and mindfulness and concentration and wisdom, they, are, they really are the tools that support our awakening process. And when we've used them over and over again, they become characteristic of the awakened mind and heart. You have all you need. You have all you need. You can listen to your conviction, tr- determine to try things for yourself. You can bring in energy 
and lots of attention and focus and be aware of the insight. Listen to the insight as it arises. It's all right here. So here's another take in closing on the elephant that we seek in the jungle. This is from Gendron Rinpoche. He says, don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. Nothing to do or undo, nothing to force, nothing to want. You have what you need right here in your own mind and heart lying on your own hearth. So let's breathe together for just a moment. You don't have to adjust yourself. Just stay where you are. Good practice to breathe where you are. And perhaps take a moment to look back over your day and just ponder, which of these do you need? Do you need more faith? Or the discernment of wisdom? Or is energy needing attention? Or concentration? Or mindfulness, more mindfulness to watch over it all? Just checking your own practice, your own mind and heart. It's all there. You have what you need. So thank you very much for listening and enjoy your walking period. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.